Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're going to explore the underpinnings that make it possible for America to stand as a global aerospace leader, the innovation and production enterprise. Now, let's face it, our country is uniquely postured as an aerospace nation. Want proof? The Smithsonian has a National Air and Space Museum. No other domain has this sort of focus on the National Mall. There's no Smithsonian Maritime Museum or Smithsonian Land Transportation Museum. And the reason for this is really clear. As a nation, we've harnessed air and space in a defining fashion. From the Wright Flyer to Apollo and the moon landings to the 747 and fifth generation stealthy fighters, America has been an aerospace leader for most of the 20th century. Our design and production enterprise in this zone is a major global force. It's empowered us to win wars and redefine commercial trade. It's also revolutionized travel, diplomacy, exploration, communication, and mobility. But there's a flip side to all of this. While it may be tempting to think of our aerospace preeminence as a birthright, nothing could be further from the truth. Americans may still like to think of ourselves as an industrial powerhouse, the arsenal of democracy, but the industrial base is fading. Nations around the globe are pressing ahead aggressively with their own domestic aerospace sectors. If we become complacent and coast on our past accomplishments, they'll pass us. Nowhere is this truer than in the innovation, engineering, and production realms. The design and manufacturing talent and infrastructure required to lead in those zones are really complex. Fall into second place, and it'll be tough to regain the lead. And it will have significant consequences for our nation's economy and security. So, given Mitchell's focus on military aerospace power, we're going to center today's conversation on a particular segment of the market, fixed-wing military aircraft. But the reality is that this sector is tremendously interdependent. So you'll see us refer to commercial aviation and the space sector a lot during the podcast. Now, before we cut to today's show, I want to do a quick shout out for an event Mitchell is hosting on Tuesday, October 25th, here in the Washington, D.C. region. We're hosting our first annual Space Power Security Forum. Now, given the threats we face on orbit, rapid evolution of mission demands, and advancements in technology, there's a huge amount to discuss. Not to mention a new chief of space operations with General Saltzman inbound in just a few weeks. We've also got a tremendous set of folks lined up to discuss all of these topics, including Vice Chief of Space Operations General D.T. Thompson. We also have Lieutenant General Phil Garrett, who's the Deputy Chief of Space Operations Strategy Plans and Requirements. Also, Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting, Director of Space Operations Command. Dr. Derek Torner, who is the director of the Space Development Agency, plus we also have the head of the Royal Air Force, Air Chief Marshal Michael Wigston, and the Italian Air Force Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Goretti. The event is open to the public, there's no charge to attend, we'll feed you lunch, and this lineup is really top-notch, so head to the Mitchell website to sign up because seats are limited. 
Okay, so today we're really lucky to have some top-notch uh, individuals joining for our conversation. We've got some of the leaders from the Aerodynamic Advisory Group with us today. So I'd like to start off by saying hi to Kevin Michaels. Hello, good to be with you today. This is Kevin Michaels, Managing Director. Awesome, Kevin. Thanks so much for being here. We also have Richard Abolafia. Yeah, great to be here too. Also Managing Director at Aerodynamic and really thrilled to be working on this podcast. Awesome. Really appreciate you having here. And last but certainly not least, Michael Chizik. Morning, Slick. How's it going? I am doing great. I really appreciate you guys being here. And, you know, for, for the three of you and your colleagues, you specialize in analyzing the aerospace sector. You know, you help identify trends, identify areas for companies to grow, and really how to manage risk. So bottom line, these three folks and their colleagues, they spend 24-7 understanding the details that underpin the aerospace sector. So again, I can't say thanks enough for being here. And uh, I really want to kick this off, and I want to help people understand the current state of the aerospace sector. And as a key part of this is the actual scale and scope of it. So I think a lot of us think about the legacy model, you know, maybe when we had a lot more companies, uh, production sites, and active programs in play. And a lot of that is scaled down over the past 30 years, especially as we saw defense budgets fall after the Cold War. And we saw specific commercial designs stay in service for decades versus fleet resets every few years. So Kevin, can you help us understand this evolution and where it leaves us today? And can you also help us understand how that contrasts with how you see the global aerospace industry, particularly from a size perspective? Yeah, thanks very much, Slick. Um, so first question is, well, what is the global aerospace industry and how do we think about it? And you know, it's an interesting question because we've been working in it for decades and we've never really seen a good size estimate of what the aerospace industry is. You know, we have organizations like the AIA in the U.S. that have taken stabs at what they think it is in the U.S., but they now also include a lot of things like maritime and ground forces and other forms of defense. But the way we look at aerospace is it's really, it's pretty straightforward. It's manufacturing aircraft and spacecraft. It is the components and systems and materials that go into those aircraft. It is the maintenance of those aircraft and the research and development to create them. You know, what is it not? It is not airline activity. So we don't include American Airlines in this. That's, that's a transportation problem. It doesn't include satellite broadcasting services like Sirius XM or the people that broadcast t television transmissions. Those are services. So we really focus on aerospace, making aircraft and spacecraft and satellites and the tiers of activity that go into it and the maintenance activities to support it. How big is it? We did a major study in 2018, global, looking across the world, estimating activity and tough to find information places like China and Russia. And we concluded that the global aerospace industry was $838 billion. So nearly a trillion dollars. And of course, those are pre-COVID levels. The good news is that about half of this activity was in the United States, which has a very deep and broad capability set spanning not just commercial and defense. Richard, anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this is an industry that has sort of gone in two different directions since we did that big study there, Kevin. The commercial part of it took the biggest blow in the history of commercial aviation during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
whereas the military market has accelerated considerably. But so it's, it, it's, it's probable that it's not too different from when we last studied it in terms of total size. It's just that the composition has changed considerably in favor of defense. Well, Richard, I want to dovetail on that. What does that mean from a workforce perspective? Yeah, you know, of course, most companies have exposure to both segments, the commercial and military side. And obviously, that means the workforce does, too. This means, of course, that keeping an experienced and skilled workforce in place depends far more on the defense sector than it does on the commercial. This is particularly true for R&D because due to the, well, accommodation of factors, including the relative maturation of technology in the commercial aero world and the acceleration of RDT&E for defense, a lot of new programs coming, and of course, the maturation and uh, evolution of existing programs and record levels of uh, the R1 accounts uh, with Pentagon spending mean that in terms of, you know, the really high-end ability to create new aerospace systems, a lot more comes down to defense. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about it in, in that regard. And I want to bring Michael into the conversation. The contraction that we mentioned was really painful, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that the market is surging right now in a lot of ways. Just looking at defense, major programs like the T-7, F-35, B-21, KC-46, and others, they're all pressing ahead pretty aggressively. And we've also got a super active UAV enterprise with new players like Kratos on the scene. And obviously, space is supercharged. How is this shaping the workforce as you see it right now? Yeah, you know, what we see on the workforce side is there there's still struggles to attract top-tier talent. And that's mostly for two major reasons. One is the, the, the struggle to recruit STEM graduates. So the, the popularity of STEM studies in American colleges has decreased. And not only that, there's a struggle to replace the baby boomers that are retiring that are working on the manufacturing lines. So this emphasis on attracting trade and technical talent, it, it's affecting manufacturing companies in, in the aerospace industry. And not only that, the engineers that they're trying to attract, they're competing with Silicon Valley and other startups as well. So now as the industry is experiencing growth post-COVID, there's still this struggle to fulfill production capacity because of the talent resources. If I could add to that, you know, where, where you are seeing a lot of interest, you see this in the universities and the engineering schools, the students coming in today, if you ask them, what are you interested in? There's a lot of interest in space, in what we call new space, you know, and that's uh, some of the things we've seen on TV in the last couple of years. And there's also a lot of interest in urban air mobility and the promise that that could present, although that's very nascent right now. It certainly gets people excited because it has that sort of Silicon Valley venture capital uh, feel to it. Uh, so those are certainly some of the areas now that new graduates, when they come in, are interested in. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such a booming field. And I'm excited in the sense that if that's the quote unquote, like new sexy that will get young folks interested in STEM, and then hopefully they get turned on to, to the larger, broader perspective of aviation manufacturing, et cetera. It's a great catalyst. And I, and I do want to point out, you know, it's really important to understand like with airplanes and space systems, you know, they're not just built in one place. It's really the assembly of thousands of components and pieces of structure and various systems. We all often think about the final assembly line 
when something looks like an airplane or a space system, but the design and production stream is way longer than that. I wanted to get Kevin to hop in and explain on how that ecosystem factors into all of this. Yeah, that's a great question. So when we were talking about the global industry being $838 billion when we last estimated it, what's really important to understand is that the supply chains that support aircraft's production are deep and broad. And when I say deep, I mean there are multiple what we call tiers of suppliers. So let me give you an example. If we deliver an aircraft, let's say worth $80 billion, we might find that the OEM delivering that aircraft for $80 billion could be spending upwards of 70% of that amount with outside suppliers, people providing the engine, the defense electronics, the avionics, the aircraft systems and the like. We call those people that support OEMs directly tier ones. It's kind of language that's borrowed from the automotive industry, you know, the tier one suppliers. Now, good examples of those tier ones are people, household names. They're people like Raytheon and Honeywell are examples of tier ones that have very broad and comprehensive sets of capabilities. Those tier ones, in turn, also have their own group of suppliers, which we call tier twos. And they're spending tens of billions of dollars with those tier two suppliers. And it then goes down the chain to machine shops, which we call tier threes, where a lot of the SMEs, the small and medium enterprises, are located. And ultimately, you get down to raw material, carbon fiber, electric electronics, uh, the, the, in which we call tier four. Uh, at the very base level. So you have multiple tiers. And one way to bring this to life is that $80 million aircraft that gets delivered and gets all the press, there could, there's probably at least another $80, billion, $80 million of activity behind that of all the sub-tier suppliers to support the development and manufacturing of that aircraft. Yeah, I know that, that is a, a tremendous point, and I appreciate you diving in detail. And especially for these smaller parts manufacturers or you know, the supply chain, I, I imagine COVID did not make any of this easy. How did you guys see that play out differently comparing civil aviation to a defense aerospace? Yeah, this is Kevin again. So the COVID crisis, of course, you know, it's, it's actually COVID is the latest, but on the commercial side of the business in the U.S., Commercial suppliers have actually had to live through a four-part process that's been incredibly painful. And it was, it began actually in the early 20-teens when the commercial aircraft manufacturers, Boeing and Airbus, rolled out new supply chain management programs with different names. Boeing called it Partnering for Success. Airbus called it Scope Plus. And in essence, what they were trying to do was they were trying to capture more of the profit pools that were developed, were created in the sub-tiers of the supply chain. So in other words, what, what Boeing and Airbus started doing was placing unilateral demands on their suppliers for price reductions of double digits, for demands that they take ownership of some of the intellectual property, but also importantly, they changed the payment terms. And if we were to have done this podcast 10 years ago, Typical payment terms, meaning if I provide a part to Boeing, how long does it take me until I get paid? We call that the cash conversion cycle in the business. Typical payment terms might have been 30 days, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. So I deliver you a part, I get paid in 30 days. Today, 
typical payment terms in the commercial supply chain are anywhere between 90 and 120 days. So the OEMs are flexing their muscles. They are basically placing the working capital demands on, on the sub-tier suppliers and the smaller suppliers. And this has made life very difficult. I mean, imagine you're delivering uh, an aircraft structure to an aircraft OEM. You might have to engage in ordering material, forgings, castings a year in advance, where you're laying out cash to buy that a year in advance. You have to continue to pay your employees. You deliver that assembly to the OEM, and then you get paid 90 or 120 days later. So it's it's put significant financial stress on the chain. So that happened. And then we had a big ramp up in the commercial production rates in the late 20 teens, where these small suppliers were being asked to get ready for upwards of 60 single aisles a month. So they had to invest precious capital. They had to scale up capacity. And as soon as they did that, you had the max shutdown, the max crashes, Boeing shuts down the 737 MAX production line. This is the third stage of this four-stage act I'm telling you about. And this was absolutely devastating because this is the largest single program in U.S. commercial aerospace. And then that was followed by the COVID crisis. So you have these very weakened suppliers, especially at tier two and tier three levels, where there's a real working capital deficit today and in a strange and paradoxical way, it could be harder for them to ramp up to support higher production rates than it was to survive during the COVID crisis where they got PPP payments from the government and other forms of support. Yeah, no, I appreciate you laying that out. And I've lived that in my own personal experience in the defense industry, but I won't get bogged down there. I, I want to bring Richard in to focus specifically on military aviation for a second and explore another really important variable we just talked about here, but the really inconsistent demand signals and follow through from the services. Let's look at the Air Force as an example. Since the end of the Cold War, their success rate at meeting intended production goals has really been abysmal. We're supposed to buy over 100 B-2s and we got 21. Same for F-22. We were supposed to acquire over 700 and we got 187. And, you know, F-35 production rates have lagged massively with the service slashing the buy this year. And thankfully, at least international demand has helped offset some of that. But I mean, if I were a company, it would make it really hard to plan to be effective and efficient. So how do you see this impacting the sector? Yeah, you know, that's that's a that's a fascinating one and arguably one of the very biggest issues we face as a, as an industry in a country for that matter, you know. I mean, it all comes back to the end of the Cold War era and the sort of geopolitical vision was kind of the end of history and the last man. We don't really need to worry about peer adversaries anymore, not for decades. Well, the bill is due and it's not just the force structure and procurement patterns that had been Slashed. It's also the industrial bandwidth, the ability to produce this stuff. And now, obviously, we do have peer adversaries. The Pentagon refers to Russia as the acute threat, China as the pacing threat. Uh, in reality, they're kind of both becoming acute threats. And on top of that, we've got to support our allies because their industrial bandwidth is even worse. And you've got a big ramp up in arms procurement, not just in Europe, with our traditional NATO allies, but also in Asia too. And on top of that, you've got the pressing issue of Taiwan and the belief that maybe we should stockpile a lot of weapons there because 
day one is all you get. If there's a China attack, it, you better you better have everything in place on day one because there might not be an ability to resupply on days two, three, or four. So <laughs> it is so difficult to make all of this happen. And you've got this additional ramp up on new programs uh, happening, but none of it's really going to pay off till the 2030s. You talk about the the T7, the B21, NGAD, all that other stuff, very promising, you know, collaborative combat aircraft, everything like that. These are really late 2020s, early 2030s. In the meantime, we've just got to build what we've got. And even that is proving extremely challenging. So it's just a question of how much money can you throw at the system before it begins to kind of, (laughs) it just can't give you any more. There are just too many bottlenecks, whether it's castings or forgings or whatever else. And this is the kind of situation we're in. Yeah, you know, and I hope that that part would be a short-term problem. If we could somehow fix the defense budgets to right-size it, especially, you know, just as we're looking at this case study of the Air Force, yeah, we might have a bottleneck, but if we knew that there were payment terms that were going to be on time and sustainable and we could kind of get ourselves out of this bottleneck from a supply chain to support everything that we needed to would, would be the eventual fix in my mind. But, you know, I've been building to this point uh, so far on the podcast, but I mean, it, it really seems in many ways that we are an aerospace nation in spite of a lot of the decisions that have been made. And I'm not sure how the sectors made it through some of this churn. It's got to be fragile giving all of this. So, Richard, as I recall, there were some historic examples where some other countries wandered down a similar path and never really recovered. Can you give us some thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most interesting aspects of the, the tragedy with Russia's attack on Ukraine is watching, in addition to everything, the, the, the human horror, the geopolitical horror, it's also the whole example of what happens to an airspace nation and, and the USSR was, but then it became, of course, Russia, and that it became unbelievably rife with corruption, unbelievably, to the point where it turns out their airspace capabilities are almost completely non-existent. They can't even begin to replenish their supply of missiles or combat aircraft or drones to the point where they're seeking disperse from Iran or North Korea. That is a fascinating story of what happens when you completely gut what was a a storied aerospace capability. Obviously, from a geopolitical standpoint, maybe we should be grateful because it's best that they are no longer a power, but it's also a cautionary tale in how important it is to maintain things. You know, what's also interesting is in Europe, Britain let its its sovereign defense capabilities get dilapidated a bit. Germany, a great deal. France, somewhat. But basically, you have the same phenomenon in Europe that you do in the U.S. with the huge demands placed on a very limited system with even less industrial bandwidth than the U.S. has. You know, one of my favorite factoids is, you know, the last week of February, you had a Germany company, German company, Hensel, makes electronic warfare and radars and things. And it's one of the few defense industries left in Germany. There's not a lot else. There's their part of Airbus, there's Rheinmetall, you know, and a few others. But basically, their share price doubled in the space of a week. <laughs> There's just an awful lot of resources and not much to spend it on. So you can really see how to badly damage an aerospace industry in the world. On the positive side, you see a lot of countries now, particularly Australia, particularly South Korea, several others, Japan, that have now realized we better cultivate indigenous capabilities. 
a kind of industrial sovereignty, if you will, for defense, because otherwise that capacity to supply us in the event of a contingency, a war, might not be there in the world. But again, you know, this is stuff that really won't bear fruit till the 2030s. Yeah, it, it is massively interesting, and, and, and I appreciate the uh, the comments at the end for how we get out of this. But like you said, this is a cautionary tale, and, and I think we've gotten a bit close to it recently. And, you know, I don't want to call anybody out by name, but there are some companies who have just produced legacy military aircraft for a long time and haven't been in the new design or production zone for a while. And, you know, frankly, those muscles atrophy, people retire, and then the knowledge is gone. It's really scary stuff. So I want to bring in Michael in helping our audience better understand the scale and scope of the aerospace industrial base, I understand that you just helped lead a team investigating the economic impact of the F-35. And I've seen some of the findings and it's really eye-opening. You know, lots of kitchen tables in this country are touched by that airplane. So what was the purpose of the audit and how did you scope it and what did you find? Sure. Yeah. I think it's best to understand that the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter pretty much touches every state in the in the country, we were asked to conduct an audit of the financial impact of the F-35 program upon the U.S. economy and estimate the direct and indirect spending that occurs from the program. So our, our goal was to look at this holistically. And what, what we did was we separated the manufacturing and sustainment activities that Kevin spoke about before. Um, aerospace production and aerospace sustainment has different categories and the suppliers in those categories have different spending profiles and each one is unique. So what we did was we, we separated F-35 production and F-35 sustainment into two separate categories. And then estimated the spending that occurs through the various tiers that Kevin spoke about before. And, and in the end, we we estimated that there's about $72 billion of economic activity that's generated from the F-35 program. That includes $34 billion in, in direct economic impact. That's, that's the economic impact that's generated from the actual aircraft production and sustainment. And then another $38 billion in, in indirect activity. Think of this as the, the economic impact that, that happens when an aerospace employee then goes out into the community and goes to dinner or goes to a movie or, or buys something at a local store. So $72 billion annually just from this one aircraft program. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, especially, you know, the economic impact, right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's where it goes full circle. Richard, how does the notion of the manufacturing tiers that we talked about play into what you found? Well, exactly what Kevin described before, the multiple tiers, you really see this with the F-35. It is not only the biggest defense program in world history, it's also arguably the most complicated, right? Just because of the nature of sophisticated subsystems that very often have their own industrial ecosystem behind them. The engine comes to mind, obviously. It's about the most capable and complicated combat aircraft engine built yet. And it's got its own tiers behind it, producing everything from gaskets and linings all the way up to fan blades and castings and forging. So it's that's hugely complicated. And similarly, you know, you have these very sophisticated systems, you know, whether that's the ACE or radar, the electro-optics or the EW package or whatever else, all of them have rather complicated relationships and industrial systems behind them. So just looking at that 
following where all the money went. It's a, a fascinating exercise looking at arguably the most complicated mass production aerospace program in history. Yeah, that, that's definitely an, an understatement. Obviously, you know, partner nations and, and, and all of the services flying fixed wing in, in the U.S. It's, it's tremendous. Kevin, I want to ask you this. We're speaking about F-35. You know, it's been an active program for a lot of years and it's going to continue for a long time. So what sort of impact does a program of that scale have on the industrial base, you know, writ large? Is it an anchor for a lot of the industrial players out there? Yeah, excellent question. And I think this is something that just hasn't been widely publicized, is that the if you think about what I described earlier in the commercial supply chain and the extreme stress that a lot of suppliers are under today, it's very different on the military side. And primes, military primes, uh, like Lockheed Martin and some of the others, you know, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, et cetera, but they are paying their suppliers. Their payment terms are much more traditional. 30 days is pretty typical. And some will go as far as to pay the smallest suppliers in 15 days. So what this means is that during the last couple of years, when they, the smaller suppliers in this country were being stressed, some being pushed to the brink of bankruptcy, you had this lifeline thrown to them in a sense from uh, military programs like the F-35, where the, through the Pentagon's encouragement and their concern about the supply, the industrial base, encouraged the primes to pay their suppliers much faster. That created vital cash flow that flowed into the, uh, these SMEs and sub-tier suppliers and really helped keep them afloat. Our company did some supply chain survey work over the COVID crisis. And we found that regions in the country that have a stronger defense base, and in some cases have a stronger industrial base, like the Midwest where smaller suppliers might also support, let's say the automotive industry, that they had less financial distress than those in regions of the country that principally support commercial aerospace, like the Pacific Northwest around Boeing. So, Programs like the F-35 uh, have been absolutely vital in supporting the industrial base that, that, that is the underpinning not only to defense and military aerospace, but indeed commercial aerospace. Well, Kevin, I want to pile onto that. How does sustainment factor into the equation? We build an airplane once, but it's obviously sustained for years and, and even decades. And that's got to drive a set of demands for industry, I think. Absolutely. And the... Military aircraft stay in service much longer than commercial aircraft. And the average military aircraft in this country, I think, is something like 15 years older than a commercial aircraft. So there's it requires a lot of sustainment. And good question is, well, what is sustainment? Let's let's be a little bit more specific. Sustainment is not only the maintenance on the aircrafts, on the engines, on the systems the work that is done in the field, you know, by green and blue suitors to support, you know, the operations of aircraft, but it also includes training of pilots, of military maintenance technicians, it, and it includes sustaining engineering support and supply chain activities. There's a very broad group of activities. Some of this work is performed by the primes, you know, that have advanced capabilities. But an awful lot of this work is performed by the 
green and blue suitors, the military personnel in the field or at depots to support the aircraft. There are seven big depots in the U.S. that support our fleet of roughly, what is it, 14,000 aircraft, Mike? Uh, Seven big depots, but an awful lot of folks in the field and intermediate depots providing field support in region, in situ, and it ends up being very, very broad, as Mike indicated. It's $9 billion of direct activity to support the sustainment of the F-35, for example. And it's And in places like Oklahoma, not to pick on one state, but Oklahoma has the largest maintenance depot in the world at Oklahoma City Air Logistics Center. It's an absolute anchor to the state's economy. And they're supporting uh, multitudes of aircraft types and models and engines and all kinds of things there. But it's just an example. One of the largest employers, possibly the largest employer in the state. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible what they've done there. And and I appreciate you kind of anchoring, you know, the the various locations and, and the impact of the sustainment piece. And I want to ask this to Richard. I get that, you know, obviously F-35 is a major impact to the industrial base ecosystem, but there are obviously other big programs out there. So how would you compare their impact relative to F-35? Yeah, you know, really the F-35 is pretty much unique in the world right now. I mean, back uh, 22 years ago, I worked for the JSPO and other industrial participants on the total market size. And in aggregate, we came up with the number of 4,000 aircraft. It could easily be that, right? You know, I mean, easily. Matter of fact, I, I think that's probably a pretty good baseline number. You know, there's really nothing like that in the world. The objective now is to ramp up to 156 aircraft per year. But in reality, market demand is moving it towards more like 200 for obvious reasons. The situation both in Europe and Asia. You could easily see that going for another decade just because a lot of people would put off their fighter recapitalization decisions until this plane was available. And then the crisis, of course, accelerated those decisions. So there's simply nothing like that. You you look at programs like the F-15, the Super Hornet, the Eurofighter, they're all pretty much two per month right now. Even the Rafale from France, which has been very successful, is kind of a two per month program. So You've got two per month versus 156 heading to 200, perhaps, if they can work out the industrial base kinks. This simply dwarfs everything else. Now, obviously, in the future, you'll have new programs, but you won't really see metal cut for you know another five or 10 years or composites cut or whatever else. And in terms of other programs, you know, there's a lot of rocket science involved with rockets, of course. And, <laughs> but in terms of manufacturing activity that affects the workforce, and the industrial base, the F-35 is really completely unique in the world today. Sure. I just want to quickly open it up to see if there's anything uh, else that you guys would like to highlight from what you learned from the assessment. I think one, one point of clarification, we talked, we began the discussion by talking about the global aerospace industry, $838 billion. That is the total direct activity of the aerospace activity. So if we're talking apples to apples, you asked us about the F-35 program. We estimate that that generates about 34 billion of direct activity, meaning the manufacturers, the sustainers, and the various tiers, and then another 38 billion of indirect. So to put this into apples to apples for the listeners of this podcast, when we said the world is 838 billion of activity, we should compare that against 34 billion. So another way of thinking about it is 
you know, the F-35 program by itself is almost 5% of the world's aerospace industry by itself. Wow. And if I could just add one other thing there, uh, Slick. Aerospace, of course, is a global industry, yet national defense capabilities are hugely important, and aerospace is part of that. So a little bit of a contradiction there, but I, I think you get where I'm coming from. And right now you have the situation where on the commercial side, and commercial, of course, is hugely important in terms of volume. It's not just the recovery from the pandemic-related downturn. It's also the fact that Airbus is taking a lot of market share from Boeing. And what's even more disturbing is that Boeing does not appear to be doing anything about that. You know, Boeing is great at building new planes. They're, they, they, they're brilliant at defining market needs for a new jetliner, but they haven't done that with a clean sheet design in 18 years. And they've said they won't be doing it for another couple of years. So the American commercial industrial base, which of course is closely linked to Boeing, is getting hammered, quite frankly, relative to Airbus. Now in Europe, as I'd mentioned, their military side has much more limited bandwidth and their suppliers are hostage to that. But what you're seeing here is a much greater American dependence on the military side of things, particularly the F-35 for the entire industry. You know, for an example, you know, single aisle jets are the biggest volume of any aerospace market segment in the industry. Airbus is ramping up to 75 per month, whereas Boeing, they've been kind of stuck at around 30 per month and not a lot of hope for going higher. So an enormous amount of the U.S. industry in particular depends upon the fortunes of the F-35 program. Gotcha. Yeah, I really appreciate that last comment. Okay, I'd like to bring this big picture here and kind of go around the horn on uh, what you think we should do to help ensure the future success and health of the defense aerospace sector. I mean, this is an asymmetric American advantage, and it's one of the expert areas where we are very competitive, obviously, and we don't want to lose that. So, uh, Kevin, let's get started with you. You know, I think we're doing a lot of things right right now in supporting the defense and military sector. I mean, I, it, Richard can opine on this. It would be nice if Congress could open up the throttle a little bit on production of the winning programs like the F-35 and others that could really assist our industrial base at a time when the commercial market is under distress. Yeah, that's certainly true. And as a key part of that, of course, moving to a full rate production decision and most importantly, the multi-year procurement contracts that go with that full rate production decision, I think would be extremely helpful. You know, a lot of suppliers, no matter how big they see the program being, no matter how encouraged they are by the news flow and the order book, really want the kind of four or five year visibility that comes with a multi-year procurement contract before they make the investments and hiring decisions, understandably so. Even just taking that news to their financial providers is a big step. So uh, yes, absolutely. All right, guys. So talking a lot about the industrial base, I I always feel that obviously there are things that we can improve on, like we talked about. In the U.S., it is a mainstay for our sovereignty that we've built and we maintain this incredible industrial base. And we've talked about other countries, you know, maybe that didn't do so well. One thing that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet is China and what they're doing from what I understand, and we'll keep it unclassified, but they are ramping their aerospace, especially with their fighter productions through the roof. So can you shed some light on that? Yeah. You know, when we look at, you know, as, as the Pentagon says, the pacing threat, you can see the sort of long lead 
aspect of that with their remarkable ramp up, not just with combat procurement, but the broader infrastructure of aerospace, kind of a holistic national aerospace strategy that includes everything from commercial jets all the way down to, to small the small aircraft to obviously the building blocks behind everything, especially semiconductors. They, you know, they've identified this multi-decade effort to become an aerospace nation. If Russia has declined remarkably due to corruption and whatever else, China is clearly aspiring to take their place. And some of their aircraft or Me Too aircraft class, whether it's jetliners or whether it's uh, programs like the J-31 or J-20, they're, they're Me Too aircraft, but they're learning to innovate. And more importantly, they're learning to build sensors and engines and, and weapons. And of course, the fusion that connects satellites and broader architectures with these shooter platforms, they're learning to do that all. And this might play out over 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. We don't know. But it represents an effort to create an aerospace industrial base that's every bit as capable and perhaps more so of it if they get their way in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it just, it dawned on me as you were speaking that we haven't really had to face a Chinese threat that's sold commercial off the shelf to another country, right? So who knows in, in 30 years that uh, we could be seeing export variants of Chinese fighters and things like that our airmen could face in the skies. So uh, I really appreciate that perspective. And I just want to say thank you all for being here on the podcast today. It's really been insightful and, and I know that the audience is going to really enjoy it. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Slick. Thanks, Slick. You really appreciate it. Thanks so much to you and, of course, to Mitchell Institute. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.